0: Longer that Jesus talks, the bigger the crowd gets. I never have that problem, right? The longer I talk, the more the crowds thin out. Some of you wish I was done already, right? But this isn't a problem for Jesus. Every time he opens God's Word and begins to teach, The crowds get bigger. Now, uh, we're going to use this story today to really uh, talk about our mission. And we want to talk to you about kind of a new way that we're thinking about our mission. The mission of churches really don't change, right? But we're changing the way we think about our mission. We're changing the way we are articulating our mission. So I want to show you our mission statement this morning. And it goes like this. We grow radical disciples who love and lead like Jesus. These are our more marching orders. This is why we as a church have been placed in this community, in this city. This is why God has left you on planet earth and hasn't taken you uh, directly to heaven, right? And so I just want to break this down a little bit. Uh, so let's look at the first part of this. We grow. Radical disciples. Now, I want to think about the word grow for a minute. This means that what we do here is inorganic. It takes time. In the same way that it takes time once a farmer has sown seed, he has to be patient and wait for a crop, right? It means that we don't manufacture people here. We're a greenhouse. We're not a factory. We don't stamp people. When we say that we grow people here what we're saying is you know it's as much art as it is science and we have to pay attention to the kind of environments that we're providing here. We want to be a greenhouse for growth. We also say not only that we want to grow but that we want to grow radical when we use that word, I think sometimes this word gets a bad rap. We, we, don't, we mean we just want to stand out. We mean we want to stand apart. We mean we want to be over the top. We mean we want to be fully devoted. We mean, when we use the word radical, that we want to be true to the call of Jesus. Because, friends, when you read the New Testament, there's only one kind of discipleship. There's only one call to discipleship, and it's always a radical call. And so we want to grow radical. And then when we when we use this word disciples, here's all that we're saying. A disciple is merely a student of Jesus. And we're just saying that for every one of us in the room, we want everyone to be a student of Jesus. And we, we say this all the time, right? We know three things are true of a disciple. The definition for a disciple is found in the call to discipleship. So think about a passage like Matthew 4, 19. We'll put this on the screen for you, right? Uh, Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men so we see that from just from the call to discipleship that three things are true of anyone who would call any man or woman or teenager that would call themselves a disciple of jesus first a disciple is someone who's actually following jesus they're living their life surrendered to jesus on a daily basis they are learning something from jesus every single day as his students so they're following him the second thing that we see that's true of a disciple in this instance is that jesus is making them into something so they're daily not only following and living surrendered to him but they're becoming they're growing right they're changing uh, they're becoming better husbands. They're becoming better wives, better moms, better dads, better uh, children, b- better families, better employers, better employees as, G- as they're following Jesus every single day. We are being, so to be a disciple means that every day you're being changed and transformed, shaped by Jesus. He is making you something. And then the third thing that we see that's true of every disciple, right, is that they're living on mission with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not just going to make you anything. I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, right now you fish for dollars, but I'm going I'm to teach you how to fish for destinies. Not just dollars, but destinies. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So we want to grow radical students, radical followers, radical disciples who do two things really well. And here's the first. Uh, we, want, we want to grow radical disciples who just love well. We want, so when we use that word radical, we want, to, we want to radically love people here. We want you to radically love people here, right? This is so important. Listen, love is our New Testament, New Covenant marching orders. It is the litmus test. Of our discipleship. In fact, Jesus said, right, by this will all men know you're my disciples if you love one another. Here's what I'm telling you the sign of a Christian is not a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says honk if you love Jesus. The sign of a Christian is not a cross around your neck. The sign, the mark, the sign that Jesus intended to identify you and I as disciples of Jesus is love and only love so important that we get this right but we not only want to love like jesus we want to lead like jesus now listen when i use that word lead i know what some of you do some of you check out because you're like well he's talking to somebody else here because i'm not a leader and nothing could be further from the truth so listen folks leadership is nothing more than influence And no matter who you are in this room, now it's true that some of us have bigger circles of influence than others of us. But all of us, every one of us in the room, have circles of influence. And what we're saying is that we want to be men and women who use our circles of influence not to build a better following for ourselves or to do more for ourselves, but that we want to use that circle of influence to serve. To serve people, to invest in people, to add value to people. And so, uh, th- this whole idea of leading like Jesus is so important because what we see in his life is that Jesus didn't lead to benefit himself, he leveraged his leadership. He leveraged his authority. He leveraged all the resources of heaven for your benefit and my benefit, for our benefit. And that's the way, that's the kind of leaders that we want to produce here. And then finally, we just say, look, we want to love and lead like Jesus. Folks, uh, Jesus is our Savior, He is our master, he is our Lord. He is our friend, he is our helper, he is our counselor. He is our source and he is our strength. it's, it's only and simply about being a follower of him, right? So his story, I mean, if he really is all of those things, then his story has to feature prominently in my story and your story and the stories that your families tell, right? Right? So this is it. This is how we're articulating and thinking about our mission these days. And so here's what I want to do. I want to springboard into just one other story that kind of encapsulates a call to discipleship. And uh, just talk about how that leads, uh, how we get that word radical discipleship um, and, and where that comes from. And so I already mentioned that you kind of see right out of the gate in this story, right, that the longer that Jesus talks, the bigger the crowd gets. So there's a problem that needs to be solved. The problem is the crowds are pressing in on Jesus. So he, he turns to a man named Simon who will come to all be known as Peter. And he says to him, hey, I, I want to borrow your boat and i want you to row me out a little bit from shore so jesus is just solving a problem he's trying to make room uh, on the beach to accommodate the crowds of people that have come to hear him teach and i need you to hear me say this is an invitation to peter jesus doesn't do anything randomly What he's trying to discern is he's trying to discern the stuff that Peter's made of here. He's not testing Peter's theology or what he believes. He's not testing his intelligence. He's not even testing his character. He's testing Peter's willingness to jump into a situation right, and help solve a problem. He's determining, we might call it in our day, what he's discerning is, Peter, do do you have a bias for action? In other words, if there was this problem and Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey Peter, we've got a problem, the crowd's too big, what are we going to do? And Peter says something like this, hey look, let somebody else do it. I mean, look, you know, I'm busy. I've got a lot going on. Look, Look to somebody else. Solve your own problem. End your sermon early. Just send the crowd home, right? Hey, I don't want to get involved. Just let somebody else do it. I mean, that would probably be a bad sign, wouldn't it, when it comes to discipleship? But Jesus gives him this opportunity, and the Scripture says immediately Simon Peter takes action. He gets in the boat, and he rows Jesus off the shore. And I think that sometimes when churches make asks of people, you know what I think the average knee-jerk reaction is in a local church? Hey, let somebody else do it. I'm not going to step up. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to take any action. You know, I'm not going to help solve any problems because somebody else will probably step up and do it, right? And, and so I just want to ask you flat out today, will you be the kind of person that will take action, even if it's something small? I mean, J- Jesus doesn't ask Peter here to do something huge or life-changing. He just says, look, get in a boat and row away from shore a little bit. This wasn't even a big ask, right? And sometimes Jesus will ask us to do small things in order to test our willingness to take action to be a problem solver and then right after and that's a part of radical discipleship right just being some a person of action being willing to do something to get up off of our hands and out of our seat and solve the problems that exist in our world and then right after Jesus gives Peter this opportunity then he commands Peter uh, you know to row out with him after he's asked him to row out He gives Peter a second um, order or invitation, right? And um, what what it is, is it's an invitation to go out in broad daylight and and let down his nets and catch some fish. I might call this the will you follow direction test, right, of a radical disciple. Because do you know what's true of a lot of high energy people, bias for action people? See, I mean, they'll create a lot of action. Uh, they'll, They'll get up and try to solve a lot of problems. They just won't follow anybody's orders. They just won't take directions from anybody, right? They won't follow God's orders. They won't follow the direction of godly leaders. And often, but not always, often they won't take direction from anyone because they think they're the smartest person in the room. And, and what many of us will think, the way you would probably say this if you were articulating this to somebody, is you would say, well, they have a problem with authority. You know, they don't surrender or submit to authority very well. And I want you to think about this. This is very interesting. Peter has been fishing all night. Peter is a professional fisherman. He knows fishing better than anyone. Jesus is not a professional fisherman. All Jesus is, is a famous rabbi, a respected teacher. From Peter's point of view, Jesus may not know anything about fishing, right? He's just a teacher. But yet, he tells Peter to let down his nets, and Peter says something that I think is so powerful. It's one of the most powerful. There are two super powerful phrases in this story. And, And so, Jesus tells Peter, let down your nets in broad daylight, unthinkable for a professional fisherman. This this command would make no sense to anyone, let alone a professional fisherman. And so Peter tells him, look, we've worked hard all night. We've been letting our nets down all night long, and we haven't caught anything until now, right? But then his response is so powerful. But Peter says, "But, but at your word, I will. In other words, here's what Peter's saying. Jesus, I don't get it. We've already done, we've already been through this. We've been doing this all night long, but because you say so, we, I will. Because you say so, at your word, I will step up and do it. Now friends, this is such a powerful statement. Um, I mean, I I believe that if Peter had not accepted this invitation, I don't believe we would know his name today. We certainly would not be talking about these stories, right? Um, What Peter does here is he obeys Jesus, listen to me, even when it doesn't make sense in light of his education and his experience. You know, from a human point of view, this makes absolutely no sense. And yet Peter is saying, because you say so at your word, I will do it. And so let me be very practical here with all of you. Will you say, will you be the kind of man, the kind of woman, the kind of disciple that is willing to say yes to Jesus even when it doesn't make perfect sense, even when it's going to be hard? Will you be the kind of follower of Jesus that would say yes wherever you are in every situation you find yourself for the rest of your life? That is what radical discipleship looks like it is a powerful thing friends when ordinary men and women says hey you know what jesus this might be hard i mean you know peter does kind of admit this right hey we've, we've been at this all night i don't get it but because you say so at your word i will so here's my challenge to you i'm going to say it as uh, as your pastor without hesitation and without apology Everything God asks you to do, every prompting that you get from the Holy Spirit, just say yes. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to say, but Master, I've been at this all night. This isn't going to be easy. I don't understand. But at the end of the day, will you say, as Peter says in this story, but at your word, because you say so, I will. I will do it. And then, we, I mean, we know what happens. You're reading the story through behind me, right? They, they let down their nets, and they end up with such a catch of fish, they fill two boats to the point that both boats are about to sink. Now, I want to think about this. Let's ask ourselves a question. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus... Uh, just bless them immensely with these huge catches of fish when they've already been up all night and haven't caught anything? Why would he do that? Now, um, the first thing I want you to to know, some of us might say, well, you know, he would do it because God likes to bless people. And it's absolutely true that God likes to bless people. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates a man and a woman, the first thing he does, even before there's sin... Before there is sin, there is blessing. The very first thing God does, God's first inclination is to bless people. It's who he is. It's part of his nature. And so certainly I believe that blessing is in view in this story. But I also think God, Jesus did this for another reason beyond just blessing Peter and uh, and his co-workers right i think he did it to see to whom peter would give the credit right so in other words peter's been at this all night and he's already said hey we haven't caught anything so in other words jesus is assessing whether peter is going to give him the credit or whether peter's going to take the credit. In other words, Peter, I mean, nothing had ever been seen like this before, right? On this lake. Nobody had ever caught this amount of fish. Peter could have gone back and done an interview for Field and Stream, right? Or Sporting News and done photo ops and said, hey, like I'm the greatest fisherman in the world. You guys should all come and learn from me, right? But Peter doesn't do that. Peter does something that's absolutely disarming and to the modern mind might even sound a little bit strange, but yet Peter uh, says it anyway, and here's what he says to me. The first thing he does when he comes ashore, he falls on his knees in verse 8, and he says something that I think has such such a profound statement, but he says, go away from me, Jesus. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And I, and I think what Peter is saying here, that we have to get our arms around, what he's saying is this. He's saying, he's saying, listen, you are so much bigger than me. Like, you are so over me. Like, you are so different than me. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. Right? I mean, you know, you should have nothing to do with me, but here you are blessing me with this enormous catch of fish. Here's the reality. Peter knows where the credit belongs. He knows he's not that good, right? And so he's on, the, on his knees saying, listen, you get the credit for everything that happened out here today, I mean, and this is so important because in a church, right, and even in your own family or your own financial life, right, I mean, it's kind of human nature when something good comes our way for us to want to take the credit, You know, to just talk about how we did it and all the steps that we took and, uh, you know, how masterfully we uh, manipulated the circumstances to make all this come together in a way that made us look really, really good. I mean, this isn't a Christian problem. This is a human nature problem, right? This is a us problem. And and one of the things I love is that, you know, about this church is that every seven days we gather on the weekend to reorient ourselves and say together, God, you deserve credit for everything good that's blown into my life. God, you are so different than me. You are so much higher than me. You are so much better than me. I don't even deserve to be in your presence, but because of your mercy and grace and because of the sacrifice of your son Jesus, I'm here and I'm alive and I'm breathing. And and you offer to walk with me through every day of my life, even when I don't deserve it. And it's so important that every seven days we be able to gather with a family like this and make that kind of declaration because if you don't, over time, you miss enough uh, seven-day cycles, here's what will start to happen. You will begin to believe that every good thing that's crept into your life has come by your hand and not God's. So important that we gather weekly in this rhythm, right? And so there's still this buzz in the air from this catch of fish, right? And I I imagine, I mean, here's how I would imagine kind of the the behind-the-scenes conversation that would go on between uh, Jesus and Peter, right? I think Jesus looked at Peter and said, man, wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that a ball? I mean, to gather all those fish, and we did that together. You did that because you, you followed my directions. Can you believe we got to experience all that together? And then Jesus says this. Now, let's just think for a moment. You got a real kick out of netting a bunch of fish, right? I mean, you know, think what it would be like for you to catch, instead of just catching fish for a few dollars, what if you were begin to use your lives to orient the destinies of people? So what he's doing is he's trying to take Peter's focus off not just dollars, but on people's destinies. And so he says, hey, look, I'm not going to make you just a fisher of fish, right? I'm going to make you a people who alter the destinies of human Beings. That's the mission I'm going to invite you into. Nothing against fishing, you understand, but just to compare the stakes, right? I mean, you bring fish in, you take them to market, and you get some dollars. Nothing against dollars, right? But just take a moment and compare the value of a dollar to the destiny of a human being. There's no comparison. When you compare dollars versus destiny, there is no comparison, right? There is nothing more important than the destiny of human beings. Every single one matters, right? And so what, what, Peter, what Jesus is in effect saying to Peter, and he says the same thing to us. Are you going to spend your whole life rallied around dollars, or are you going to do something that involves destinies, What's it going to be? Are you going to be on mission with me? We said that one of the definitions of a disciple, right, is it's a man or a woman who's on mission with Jesus. And what we mean by that is we value destinies over dollars. Now, I want to be clear about something. If you're here this morning and you go to work every day or you're a student and you go to school Uh, that matters and that is important and that is your vocation and that is where God has put you and that means in all likelihood it's where you're meant to be. But let's also be clear about something else. If the affection of your heart is more around dollars and less around destinies, if that is at the core of who you are, right, what you really care about is just you know, what you can catch little fish for and take them to market and sell them for, if that is your heart, you're not on mission with Jesus. And you've just got to own that. You've got to acknowledge that. You've got to admit that, right? What it means is that something is wrong in here. There's a button you need to push, a lever you need to pull to, to Come into an understanding of what really should matter in your life, right? See, the call of discipleship is to be on mission with Jesus every single day. So what it means... What it would look like to go to work with a grander vision, right, to be on mission with Jesus, you would say to God, God, I, hey, look, I've got I've to go to work and I've got to punch a clock and I've got to earn a paycheck. I have to feed my family, right? I have to pay a house payment. I have to pay my bills. But God, I know I'm certainly here for that but I also know that I'm here to catch bigger fish because there are bigger fish to fry. So at the end of the day, how can I take some of my dollars and use them to better invest in the destinies of people? And how can I spend my time here at work in such a way, whether I'm teaching in a school or scrubbing up in a hospital or whether I'm punching a clock in a factory, right? Wherever I go, how can I use some of my time here to be on mission with you, Jesus? This is what radical discipleship looks like and when you look at the New Testament, radical discipleship is the only kind of discipleship That there is you know inherent in the call right of a disciple is to leave some old things behind in fact that's what happens in this story at the end of this story uh, we're told something amazing and it comes off a little weird when you hear it it says at the end of the story and they left everything behind And they followed him. That sounds pretty radical, don't you think? Now here's what's interesting. There's no record in the story of Jesus actually asking them. We're sure he did, right? But we just know their response at at Jesus and who he was was so overwhelming that they just said, you know what, we're going to give up everything else in our lives to be with this guy. We're going to give up everything else in our lives so that we can spend time with him. We can be intimate with him. We can know him deeply. And, you know, this is um, an invitation that Jesus is still, you know, offering today, right? And sometimes this gets portrayed in a kind of way that doesn't make sense to people. Like, like Peter was like a robot, right? Like, you know, danger, whatever, right? Like a robot. And nothing can be true. That's not what's going on here. Remember, in this story, Jesus is a famous rabbi. The reason that that Peter is a professional fisherman is because at some point a rabbi cut him loose. Every Jewish boy was taught and trained by a rabbi. And at some point a rabbi looked at Peter and said, You don't have what it takes. Go home and take on your family's fishing business and so all of a sudden here was a famous rabbi who looked at peter and said peter i'm calling you to follow me and peter recognized this for what it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to be invested in by a famous rabbi when another rabbi had already cut him loose and said you don't have what it takes and that's why you see the disciples so readily, you know, when they see Jesus do these incredible things, uh, just be so willing to leave it behind.